Brilliant. And I think this is a brilliant introduction to MMT. And, and we're on our 20th show and we actually haven't really directly spoken about MMT. And I yeah. think this is a brilliant introduction. And, and who yeah. better to have than, than, than you, than Warren, to, to talk about it? So hi, hi, Warren Mosler, and welcome, very much welcome to Scottonomics. It's great to get you onto the programme. So right. I'd like to start off by asking uh, you, can you tell our audience a wee bit about your background, Warren? Okay, so I uh, studied at the University of Connecticut. I grew up, born in Connecticut, grew up in Connecticut, and uh, didn't leave until 1976. So I have a, a degree, undergraduate degree in economics, 1971. I went to work in 1973 at the Savings Bank of Manchester, and that got me started in banking and finance. Uh, in 19, along the way, I worked at the Bankers Trust, which was a probably the, maybe one of the number one primary dealers uh, in the world at the time, and that was on 16 Wall Street. And I was on the, at the trading desk. I was uh, they made me a uh, vice president, assistant vice president in charge of sales and trading of Ginny May Securities, which were the first derivatives uh, back then. And so, um, and I, and I had had almost no experience at all, but it was a time where they were just hiring people. They thought could, they just took a chance. And uh, so I was there from 1976 to 1978. And that's where I got most of my information about the monetary system, monetary operations, uh, how things work. And I got, they didn't, teach them to me. I just got them by observing what was happening and asking people who were trading the different securities, how they worked and why this went one way and how it was accounted for and that type of thing. And, and I, I pretty quickly developed a picture in my own mind about how the system worked. And that was, let's say, the early days of the understandings that are now come to be known as modern monetary theory. Okay. Now, interestingly as well, um, you point out in soft currency economics as well that when you graduated, um, President Nixon in 1971 took us off the gold standard internationally. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that was the same year. And and that we entered into floating exchange rates and non-convertible currencies. So yeah. you were at university. Was this, you know, was this talked about? Was it really understood at university or just after in your world, in your economic world? that this was momentous and really changed everything. I don't remember it ever being discussed in those terms, either there or at the savings bank where I worked or at Bankers Trust. It just wasn't part of the discussion. Nobody paid any attention to that event other than uh, it was somewhat coincidental with the rise in oil prices and inflation that, that followed it a little sometime after that. And, there were people who would say that the reason um, the Saudis and OPEC started raising prices is because we went off the gold standard. So there, there were some, some things attributed to it, but not the idea that we were uh, had a different set of um, dynamics operating in the, in the monetary system. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah. how and when did you reach your conclusions on modern monetary theory and what were the big light bulb moments along the way to it or was there just one? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I picked up pieces along the way as, you know, when they were, uh, that happened to become important to what I was doing. So while I was at Bankers Trust, the Fed raised reserve requirements, for example. So it's like, okay, what does that mean? And I remember the trading manager, uh, Alan Rogers, and he used to talk without moving his mouth. <laughs> and he would say, uh, you know, well, I hope the Fed doesn't just give them the reserves this time, because last time they raised requirements, they just gave them the reserves because there's too much, you know, the money supply is too large and they, they need to bring it down, drain some of that money out. And right. this was in a trading meeting and I was a fairly new trader. And I, I remember saying, uh, you know, uh, Alan, they, they, they can't do that. You know, it's just a spreadsheet. You can't take an entry off a spreadsheet without a corresponding entry on the other side. You know, of course, you know, they, they have, that's why reserves are automatically added. They have to have reserves. He said, well, there's 300 billion euro dollars sloshing around and they could bring those back. You know, I go like, no, you can't. It's just a spreadsheet of, you know, on a bank overseas that has dollars and assets on one side and liabilities on the other. You can't like, they don't jump off and come to some New York thing, you know, to, to for reserve requirements. There's no, there's no channel. 
And uh, so somehow I, I knew that then. And that, that meeting didn't mean much to me, except it was just another example where I didn't think they, uh, they you know, I didn't have a lot of respect for management's knowledge about the systems that I was watching in motion on a daily basis. And uh, now on a look back, that became uh, the early understandings of what is now MMT, right? Or part of it on the, on the monetary operation side. And so along the way, um, there were events like that. Now, one of the reasons I remember that also is my partner, my Cliff Finer, who later became my partner, was at um, Phoenix Mutual. And Morgan Stanley had run a similar article in the Wall Street Journal. He pointed my attention to it, where Eric Heinemann, their chief economist, who was a famous name back then, had said the same thing. I hope the Fed doesn't just give them the money this time. The money supply is too high. So I explained to Cliff uh, what I just explained to you. And he called Morgan Stanley. He was a client. And he calls me back with some double talk answer they gave. And I straightened that out, which he picked up immediately. He called them back and, and, he, and he calls me back and he says, uh, you know, I called them back and he says they retracted their position on this. They agree that the reserves have to be added, you know, when they're raised. So that's kind of interesting. And, and that was, um, you know, I, I, so I knew enough about my sense of logic to know that this is, has to happen as a matter of the accounting. And here we just overturned the chief Wall Street economist, Eric Heinemann's Wall Street Journal article, pointed out that it's wrong. And Morgan Stanley, and he agreed and retracted it. So, you know, that stood out. And that's those arguments are those discussions are still going on today about what happens when they raise reserve requirements or don't. You'll see China raising reserve requirements, and I'll say it's of no consequence at all. At all. And other people will say, oh, they're tightening credit. And it's like, so the same same things are going on. So that was sort of an early understanding, but it didn't get me like on a mission to promote things particularly. That came uh, a few years later when uh, Italian bonds were very uh, uh, cheap to Italian funding. So you could borrow money from the Italian banks in Lira at 10% and lend them to the government through their CCTs and other securities at 12%. And they would just give you 2% for taking the risk that Italy wouldn't default. And so if you could come up with any reason that Italy would not default, it was Italian bonds were pretty good value. You could it's basically free money. And so that caused, again, just like the other event of the Fed raising that in Morgan Stanley's article, this gave me cause to start thinking about all right, why might a government default or not default in its own currency. And so... Uh, First, I checked the record and checked with S&P and no uh, government had ever defaulted in their own currency, except for Japan in 1943 had decided not to pay the United States government yen that it owed it. It's like, okay, it's political. It wasn't because they couldn't pay the yen. And the answer is like, well, why not? And it, with all this debt and whatnot, and it's, well, they can always print the money. And I say, okay, fine. But they never did print the money, did they? And I was talking to people at Standard & Poor's and Blues. They go, well, well, no. <laughs> but because they could, you know, so that's So anyway, I was talking to my research assistant, Tom, our head of research, not research assistant, Tom Schulke. And he, uh, and it just dawned on me. I said, Tom, you know, if we um, buy treasury securities from the Fed or if we buy them from the treasury, it doesn't make any difference to us. We own the same thing. The money goes to the same place. The dollars get debit our account. They credit our securities account at the New York Fed. It, you know, and so if there's no functional difference to the economy, whether whether it's the Fed or the Treasury selling them, yet they're saying one is monetary to support interest rates, and the other one is fiscal to fund expenditures, they can't be any difference. That just has to be accounting on their side of the ledger, and and obviously they're not. Both stories are correct. And, it, and, that, and then at that point, it just jumps out at you. It's all monetary. It's all to, uh, you know, inter it's all interest rate support. It has nothing to do with funding expenditures at the uh, operational level. And that is why Italy wasn't in a position to default. Because if you look closely at the accounts uh, at the central bank, they are spending first. Uh, and then they are issuing securities to keep the interest rate from falling to the support rate. Now, the support rate at the time was zero in the U.S. It was a half a percent in Italy. And, uh, and then the whole thing is perfectly obvious how the system works. And it's not complicated or anything. So um, 
so now we understood that this was uh, why Italy went to fall. But one of my clients was Harvard Management, which was uh, Maurice Samuels and uh, Dave Middleman. Dave was the head guy. Maurice worked with him. He was his partner. And they, they were like this and were ready to buy Italian securities. And they said, well, you know, let's go to Italy and talk to, why don't we go to Italy and talk to the uh, people there, the treasury there, to make sure they understand it so they don't do something stupid. They realize there's no pressure on them to not pay. In fact, it's the opposite. There's no way they can't not pay without reprogramming their computers. So um, so because they were at Harvard Management, they have the, the uh, credentials to get the meeting. So Maurice and I go to, go to Italy and we're at the uh, treasury talking to Luigi's, Professor Luigi Spaventa. And, uh, I, you know, I, and it was very dark days. It was, everybody was depressed. There was a big, thick piece of report on Luigi's desk from Rudy Dornbush, MIT economist, talking about how Italy was inevitably going to default. What year and, was this, uh, Warren? Uh, this was 1992 or three, something like that. I, I think it's 93. You have to, I, I looked, I couldn't exactly remember, but that's when Spaventa was, you know, at Treasury you know, in the official records. So I think it was 93, might've been April or something like that. So, uh, so, and he's there dressed in his three piece suit with a pipe looking like Keynes, you know, with his British English, he was trained his English, perfect English, but his British accent, right? That's how they learned it in Italy, I guess. Uh, and uh, I said, look, Professor Fence, I have a question for you. It's rhetorical, don't answer it, but why is Italy issuing all these securities, CCT, BTP. Is it to fund expenditures to get the lira to be able to spend? Or is it because um, it, if you spend the lira and don't issue securities, then your uh, interest rate falls down to zero? I didn't realize their support rate was half a percent. But I said the rate falls to zero when your target rate is 10, 11, 12%. So if you just spent the money and didn't sell securities, you'd have And he, he looks around and he's, and he's first thing he says is he goes a few seconds later, he goes, no, he said the rate won't drop to zero. It'll drop to half a percent because we have a half a percent support rate. And I said, I'm thinking we finally have a guy in government who actually understands monetary operations. This is a good thing. And then he jumps up and goes into this rage against the IMF and they're making us act pro-cyclical and, you know, all this big rage against, he didn't use a word, but austerity which is what they were being forced to go through in order to do finances. And, um, and, he, and he's all excited. He's, and, and he starts calling in people from the other offices to hear the story about why this whole idea of default was nonsense, or, you know, for, markets forcing default is nonsense. And uh, we're supposed to be there for 20 minutes and they're buying us, buying, they got this big cappuccino machine. They're making this fancy cappuccino. And we were in there for two hours talking to them about how it all worked. And then we had to run out to our next meeting. And a week later, uh, an announcement came out of Rome saying no extraordinary measures will be taken. All payments will be met. And the crisis went away. So it was a lot easier then because they had their own currency and it was just a matter of understanding their own monetary operations. Today, it's more complicated, but at the bottom of it, it's the same same thing, right? So, um, and so, and we became in Harvard Management, the largest holders of Italian debt outside of Italy, we were told. Uh, and so we were big heroes for buying their debt and saving the country and everything else. So it was, it, it was kind of an epic trip. And now after that is when we had Ross Perot uh, rising politically, and he was making capital, uh, political capital on the idea that um, the U.S. was in dire straits on its debt, was going to default, and this type of thing. And that appears in soft currency economics. And he was responsible for, uh, you know, Bill Clinton winning the election because he took away 15% of the votes that would have gone to, uh, was it Bush at the time? I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so that's the, 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 the fear mongering of Ross Perot, you know, was the swing, big major swing factor in the election, it was the only factor in the election. And, and what, was, what was he saying that was, that was so scary for the American well, government? The same thing Paul Ryan was saying a few years later, you know, the U.S. is facing default with the national debt. It's up to, I don't know, 100 billion or whatever it was back then. And, uh, you know, we're leaving this debt to our grandchildren and it's irresponsible and we've got to do something about it. And, uh, you know, on and on and on. Uh, and um, 
the uh, what what else happened with that thing? So, uh, yeah, so you know, which, which was obvious. Now, oh, no, the the irony is, Ross, he was a client of mine, okay, through Steve Blasnick, who was his investment manager. And Steve might even still be there, and Steve knew all this, and he wouldn't say anything to him. And it's like, like, what are you doing? <laughs> How can you do this? He says, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to talk. You know, he just didn't want to talk to him about it. He says he'll never understand anyway. It's a waste of time talking to the guy. And, you know, he had a good job as an investment manager. They were decent-sized clients of ours. They had a fair amount of money. And he liked, certainly understood, every, more than understood, he helped develop a lot of the fine points. You know, I, I, he would be one of the guys I'd bounce things off of as I came up with them. He was right there on the front lines for years doing all this. All this uh, and would not go to Ross Perot to try and have this thing fundamentally change for the United States. So interesting, you know, it's just how it worked out that way. So the next thing I want to know in the timeline is, yeah. is then after that, that you started contacting academics in the yeah. So for a few years, uh, so I, I decided, okay, what, what can I do with this? So Ned Giannata is the person I'd worked for at William Blair before. I was on my own at this point, in my own fund. And I called Ned and he said, well, you got to talk to Rummy. So Rummy was Don Rumsfeld, who was Janata's college roommate, class of 54 from Princeton. Or they were on the wrestling team and everything else. So, uh, and he had been in the office at William Blair uh, all the time because uh, Janata had worked with him on his uh, congressional campaign. He was a four-time uh, delegate from uh, Illinois. And then in 19, uh, he got him his job at uh, range job at uh, Searle, where he developed NutraSuite, you know, aspartame. That was Rumsfeld. And then from there, he went to General Instrument, turned that company around. It's just the most competent person you can imagine. You know, if you need to get something done, uh, that's the person you go to, to fix it. And whether you liked his policies or not, when he was Secretary of Defense, uh, it, it used to take 10 years to go from drawing board to battlefield. And under Roosevelt, that went down to two years. And that, that's the type of person he was who could take an organization and actually make it function well. So in 1986, he did a, he was going to did an exploratory to run, uh, committee to run for uh, president. And uh, I was on I was one of 20 people in the room when he had everybody together to talk about it. And then he later decided not to do it. So I knew him a little bit. I didn't know him socially. I didn't. But we weren't, you know, friends or anything. But we were, you know, he was in the office and used to come by and ask about what I was doing. We we chat about events a little bit. So, uh, so I, you know, Ned gives me uh, uh, Rummy. I'll call him Rummy. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know him that well. I called him Mr. <laughs> Rumsfeld. Uh, he gave me his, his phone number. And I call his office, and the secretary says he's really busy. You know, the only time he has is an hour on a Tuesday or something where he's going to be in the steam room at the racket club in Chicago. It's this little club. Uh, you could meet him there if you want. So I said, okay. So whatever the time was and Tuesday, whatever it was, I'm there in the steam. We're in our towels going through what became soft currency economics. And he was, you know, really liked the thing, although he never, uh, at that point, he wasn't in policy to adopt it or anything like that. There's, he, he didn't have a political job. So he uh, directed me to his, uh, economist friends who might be interested in helping me get it published or promote it. And uh, so that was like McCracken and Samuelson and, and La Art Laffer was one of them. And Laffer's the one who eventually, uh, you know, agreed to do the work with me. And that's where, uh, and he assigned one of his guys, Mark McNary, his economist to work with me. And he, you know, I, uh, Mark McNary was my editor, let's say on soft currency economics. And that was, um, compiled under Laffer's uh, company at the time. So I think it's important for our audience uh, now to get some sense of your philosophy. Uh, so I'm going to read a couple yeah. of quotes from, from the book, Soft Currency Economics. Yeah. So the first one is, you say, the awareness of how currencies function operationally inspired this book and hopefully will soon save the world from itself. And yeah. the other thing that you say after that as well that I th think is important you know, to under to understand you philosophically as well as in the midst of great abundance, our leaders promote privation. 
Yeah. You're told that national health care is unaffordable while hospital beds are empty. We are told that we cannot afford to hire more teachers while many teachers are unemployed. And we are told that we cannot afford to give away school lunches while surplus food goes to waste. Do you want to yeah. say something about those those things that you wh why you felt so driven to um, it, you know get more people to understand how the system works? Yeah. Well, look, I have enough to eat myself and I can afford my power bills, but a lot of people can't. And, and, and you know, the reason is because the leadership, I thought the leadership doesn't understand monetary operations. And I take the position that if they did understand them, they'd recognize that this austerity, which they think is necessary to preserve the currency and to preserve the functioning of the economy is based on false premise. And once you understand how it works, you don't have to do that at all uh, to achieve those goals that they thought they were, you know, using, that they thought they were achieving. And so that was my whole motivation was to put policy options on the table that were not on the table, uh, thinking that that was the only chance those things were ever going to happen to get through. And that was, you know, 20, how many years ago was that? 1993, almost 30 years, right? 28 years ago. So it's taken a while, but arguably it did save the world because uh, it wasn't too many years ago where President Obama said, and you can see the video clips, we are asked, when does the U.S. run out of money? He says, we're out of money now and we're borrowing from China. He actually took a trip to China, who he believed were our bankers, to make sure they would fund his deficits. Okay, And then you had Paul Ryan complaining about the stimulus program, talking about how the U.S. is going to be the next Greece and we're going to be at the IMF on our knees because the markets are going to cut off our funding. And you know, Paul Krugman and the rest talking about how deficits were going to drive up interest rates and uh, create uh, all kinds of Armageddon. And, and now, if you look two or three years ago with COVID, we had $5 trillion or something like that of deficit spending. And none of that was in the debate. The only argument that we were getting even subsequent is whether or not this is going to cause inflation, which is exactly the goal of the, you know, soft currency economics. That's what I started off trying to achieve, to have the debate shift from things that aren't applicable to the things that are applicable. And yes, yeah. you can overspend and cause inflation. Now, I'll make the argument that we haven't done that, but still, at least that's the argument. Now, some of these old, old arguments are sort of creeping in around the edges. You know, the... Uh, Democrats, Biden said he was going to pay for everything in this last infrastructure bill. But he didn't say if he doesn't, the U.S. is going to default or go broke or we're going to be at the IMF begging for money. The implication was that there'd be inflation, which would cause the Fed to raise rates. Now, the inflation itself doesn't raise rates. It's, it causes the Fed to raise rates, which is what's in soft currency economics. That rates go up and down uh, because the Fed decides votes at its meetings. It's not nothing in the economy, and it has a reaction function. Certain things cause it to go one way or the other. Now, I'd like to change that reaction function as well right now and with the, because I think they've got the rate thing backwards, that raising rates actually makes inflation worse. So why are they talking about raising rates now? And now they have absolutely no econometric evidence or support for the idea that raising rates fights inflation, at least... 20 years ago, they used to come out with these, you know, weak, very weak papers, but they were still research papers showing that if you raise rates, it would bring inflation down. And they would say, if you raise rates 1%, inflation would come down by a 10th with a two to four year lag, things like that. So it's pretty much meaningless because that was across two fiscal cycles and a commodity cycle and the whole thing. But at least they had something, right? As bad as it was. When was the last time you saw a research report from any central banks correlating interest rates with inflation and the idea that higher rates bring down inflation. You don't have it. And in fact, the evidence from the last 10 years shows the opposite. Uh, as they brought rates down, inflation came down as they measured and stayed down. And it wasn't until we got this COVID supply shock that some prices got pushed up, which they know very well is on the supply side. They can quote every, you know, their researchers are very good. You can't, I don't, uh, you know, they're, they're the best. They're very good. And, uh, they point to that. None of them point to, you know, it was because of excess demand. And yet they're talking about raising rates in March. 
and without any any support from there. So that unsettling. Okay, I'd, I'd like to see that change before they do it. Make some kind of a statement. Look, we need to do things about inflation, but our research shows that raising rates is not going to work. In fact, it's going to make it worse, which it does. Okay, and so just get out there and be honest and, and say it. And it's not just that. It's the Bank of England. The Bank of England used to come out with studies and then uh, about how interest rates would cause things. And they haven't done that either because it, it doesn't. And the last thing they had, which wasn't officially Bank of England, but it was Richard Warner, is our, our Werner, as you said, talking about how it works in reverse. So, Do you think that um, central banks are talking about interest rates and inflation again because they've been they haven't had any power to do anything meaningful for 10 years and yeah. you think if they now say well inflation's inflation's rising we can do something about it do you think there is a whole kind of i hate can i use the word of ego here but do you think yeah. this is a position for them to say hey we are still important we can do something and maybe they believe it or not but I think maybe that maybe the reason is that they want to be seen to be doing something because they've kind of lost their their, their power over the last decade or so. Yeah, well, the the political appointees may be doing that, you know, but the operations people, senior guys at monetary affairs and in research at the Fed, are not saying that. Okay, they're they're, they're intellectually honest people. They don't do that kind of thing. They're not politically motivated. I've met a lot of them, and they're really high quality people. And they're just telling these guys one thing, and then they hear what they, the political appointees who are not, that's not who they are, of course. And uh, and they're just rolling their eyes going like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's happening right now. Same with the European Central Bank. I know people who've been visiting them and talked to them, and they, they know that raising rates makes it worse. And they know that negative rates, like they have now, are a contractionary tax. It's a wealth tax. You know, whether you approve of it or not, it's not a stimulus. And they're... It's like, look, we've told these guys, and they, that's what they do, and we're not here to go public and criticize them. But in private, they'll all tell you that, you know, but, they, but they're, the they're not the type. They're not saying what you're saying. The political mm -hmm. appointees, maybe, yes, but not, mm -hmm. the, not the professionals inside the these but the, the Bank of England did raise the interest rate, didn't it? Just in December, it, it did put it up. I think it put it up to zero point two five, and yeah. and they're doing that in the belief that it's gonna it's gonna bring down inflation, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even, you know, I don't follow, I didn't follow it. But mm -hmm. if they did, I'm sure this, you know, the senior researchers are just rolling their eyes and going, look, we told them this is, <laughs> doesn't do it. You know, that that would certainly, first of all, nobody can make the case that it's been excess private sector credit growth that's causing a problem here. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of raising rates is to bring down private sector credit growth. So it, which it doesn't do anyway, because, you know, the income effect more than offsets that. This, the tiny amount, a quarter of a point is not going to be noticeable anyway, but even you're going to get an income effect just as tiny that offsets it. So you're not even going to get this minuscule effect that they think they're going to get. Yeah. It's clear that a lot of the political class, and you can't expect them to be fair to them as well, to be very yeah. knowledgeable about economics. It's not also why they're elected, you know, because often yeah. they're elected because of the type of person they are and other aspects of their background as well. So that's completely fair. Um, but, you know, it is it is actually quite incumbent once they get into office to understand this. And uh, happily, we saw John Yarmouth of Kentucky uh, speaking yeah. quite openly about his um, understanding now. And yeah. you know, I know there are certainly politicians um, that we know as well who understand this too. And again, yeah. another quote from the book as well, which I think really encapsulates what you're trying to get across about what's really important in the economy are the real resources. So you say, when people and physical capital are employed productively, government spending that shifts those resources to alternative use forces a trade-off. For example, if thousands of young men and women were conscripted into the armed forces, the country would receive the benefit of a stronger military force. However, if the new soldiers had been home builders, the may, nation may suffer a shortage of new homes. This trade-off may reduce the general welfare of the nation if Americans place greater value on new homes than additional military protection. If, however, the new military manpower comes not from home builders, but from individuals who are unemployed, then there is no trade-off. Now, I think that's a very clear example of getting politicians and the general public to understand the quite 
big difference between a business and a country. And for a country, you know, resources are what matter. The currency is just a tool. Yeah, so for the country, what they're trying to do is uh, provide public infrastructure for public purpose is what I call it, which is the military, the legal system, and uh, the public health and public education. And those are political decisions. And the more real resources, the more people you want in the public sector, the fewer you're going to have in the private sector. So you have to make a decision. You've got a real trade-off there on doing that. And then the monetary system is the tool to accomplish that. So I had a very interesting discussion with somebody from the Pentagon in like 1999. And uh, he said, uh, you know, we really need to expand the military. So I said, you should have done that seven or eight years ago when unemployment was high. You know, because today unemployment's three percent, you're going to be taking resources, people who are already working, you, you know, out of the private sector that are productive. You're going to be taking steel capacity that's being used. You know, we had high capacity utilization. So if you'd done it seven years ago when we had high unemployment and excess capacity, it wouldn't have been any cost to the uh, private sector at that point. He says, well, but, but we couldn't do that because back then we we're running a deficit. Today we have a surplus. So, I, I, you know, I, I think that tells you everything that's wrong with how public policy is formed. Okay. They're using the, the monetary system, which gives them zero information about how to allocate resources between private and public for 100% of their information. <laughs> Yeah, whether whether or not they can do it. So, and in the UK, we've had a regime in for a long time that views immigrants very poorly. It's not the case in Scotland. Scotland is underpopulated. We need more people mm -hmm. in Scotland. Um, all the infrastructure, the government infrastructure, is in London, so it has attracted a lot of businesses, NGOs, everything to London, which is it's a massively unbalanced. Uh, the UK is massively unbalanced in that sense. So there is a perception that there is too many immigrants around these very congested areas, I would, I would argue as well. A now, lot of politicians are trying to run everything right down to, the, to the, the nub and not really ensure that we have more capacity for uh, bad events that might, might happen, the pandemic being an example. Yeah, and if you look at President Biden, what he's threatening Russia with is you know, we're going to cut off your international banking ties. <laughs> it's like, it's almost like something out of Monty Python, right? What's the next thing he's going to do? Threaten to call, the, the, you know, the guy's sister a bad name or something? <laughs> you know, so yeah, good, yeah. good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and again, it's that, that realization that a country, it's not a business. It's, you know, you're not, you, you know, you're not, um, the currency is is the tool for a country. It's not the same right, as right, right. currency users when you're a yeah. currency creator. And, and of course, the big thing is that help got across is a sequence. You know, all the mainstream models have the government has to tax first in order to get money to spend, and if they want to spend more than that, they have to borrow to get money to spend, and that's the basis of G minus T and all those equations in their model. When in fact, you know, everybody in the central banks know you can't. The way they say it, you can't do a reserve drain, get money, have them pay the government without first doing a prior reserve ad. You have to spend first, so the funds are there to uh, to to pay the government. So um, whether you're paying taxes or buying securities, well, look, everybody knows the football stadium doesn't collect the tickets first and then sell them. Okay, it's pretty obvious. And so if you look at the currency as the government's tickets, you know, it has to spend the tickets, get them out there first before it can collect them. And so once you understand that, it's, you know, because the source, the government is the source of all the funds that can be used to pay taxes. That's how the institutional uh, structure is set up. You know, and so that was a big thing. That That's what um, one of the contributions MMT made to mainstream, that's overturned mainstream economics. And... So they're like little things like that. It's it, where it's not the same as a business or a household or anything like that. Only in that, you know, the funds to pay taxes come from the government. And that was the first thing we pointed out. And that's where the whole solvency issue goes away. If the government has to spend first before we can pay our taxes, what do you, you talk about running out of money? It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's not an applicable concept to, the, to, to what's going on. It's just completely out of left field. And so that has turned around and that sequence is now 
better understood. And that's fully supported by everybody in the central bank. And somebody did in the UK did a very good study on central bank operations, pointing that out you know, not too long ago. Well, what's really interesting is here you back yeah. up what some of the other American economists who we've luckily had uh, lucky enough yeah. to have on the show. It, it's almost like it's a done deal now in the States. People understand MMT. Yeah. They understand the currency issue. They understand the non-relationship to inflation, or that's where there's a little bit of a discussion. But if you were to land um, on a foreign on a foreign planet rather than a foreign country or the United Kingdom, the discussion's not happening. We're still very much in a, in the world that we that, that, that we've been in for the last forty years, and even yeah. the opposition in the United Kingdom um, and even the Scottish government, which is you know a little bit more left leaning, are still very much along the same lines of balanced budgets and yeah. taxing and taxpayers money is there any lessons that we can learn from you about how to change the narrative in scotland and in the united kingdom and more more in more general terms you know well interesting enough it's happened in the united states it took a while but it's happened from the bottom up okay i, I was just talking to a guy yesterday who uh worked as a software manager and then just got a job on a ship on a boat you know an old wooden sailing ship trying to you know nothing to do with finance or anything else and he said you know i read your book now i've gotten really excited about this and i'm talking to everybody about it and it's like you know how improbable is that that people would get excited and talk about you know monetary operations at the fed and the treasury but they do and and so what what it's showing it, you know it used to be just me and my partners at my firm and then it was you know, 1996, three years later, I introduced it on the internet to the academics. And then it was just Randy and Bill and Pavlina and a couple others. And Pavlina wrote the definitive paper, by the way, on inflation back then, you know, monopoly pricing and everything. And, and asked me about that in a minute. So, but, but it was just eight of us or 10 of us. Then it was 15 or 20. And it was growing, it was growing geometrically, which is a very slow process. You know, one, then two, then four, then eight, then 16, then 32. Five years later, you're only at 32. But now we've hit 25 years, and now we're in the millions. And nobody ever goes backwards. Nobody ever understands. Once they understand the government can't run out of money, they don't say, oh, you know what? I was wrong. I changed my mind. We can It doesn't happen. And they've seen that. And they start winning arguments with their friends. And Phil Armstrong, who just came on recently, a couple of years ago, he just loves it because he's now winning arguments with all these mainstream economists who are far more learned than he is, far more mm -hmm. you know astute. And he interviews them and gets them all tripped up, you know, without even trying, just with simple questions. And, and, and everybody experiences that idea that you know you know something important and you can understand it. And you want to explain it to everybody else. Look at real progressives. I mean, that's just like all non-technical people who are just. Uh, couldn't be more um, enthusiastic and more motivated. You know, it's not possible and going out and promoting this thing everywhere. If any thoughts why else. that's not happening? Any thoughts on why that's not happening to the same degree in, in, in the UK? Well, maybe it is, but maybe it just started 10 years later. So we're, when you do that 248, 1632, it's up to a million in the US. You're still at the 1632, 64. It's just going to take a couple more years before it's up to, you know, the million plus. So it's probably growing. Word of mouth, look at yourselves, you know, uh, geometrically, and it just kind of ramps up with a geometric progression. And you're just a couple of years away, maybe, from that more of a general understanding like the US has. And if we ever would get any real leadership uh, like Yarmouth, uh, Congressman Yarmouth, out there in, in front and with credibility, then, then everything, all the uh, dominoes would fall, I think, the remaining dominoes mm -hmm. would fall. Right now, we've got the chief economist at uh, Harvard University, uh, Jason Furman, still talking about like, well, MMTs, there's nothing new, it's old stuff, it's, you know, there is default risk, all of a sudden, you know, it's like, you know, the dinosaurs that you know, <laughs> haven't quite gone extinct yet, but they're, they will, uh, and they can't win an argument with anybody who they could, certainly couldn't win any, those arguments with anybody at the Fed and Fed research or Treasury research people. They, they can win them with other academics who are just arguing mm -hmm. hypotheticals. But, you know. Well, the, the Bank of England are, are releasing a yeah. book 
um, later this yeah. year, and I think we've got quite good expectations that that's going to paint that that's going to paint the clear functioning of a central bank. Um, well, good, to people good. And it'll give us a lot of power to be able to say it's not it's not Kieran and I or Warren Moser or whoever saying this is the Bank of England yeah. talking about where money comes yeah, from. Yeah. If they don't know how tally sticks worked, who does, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they have to know this stuff. Wrestling yeah. power away from the powerful is always difficult, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and that's the what, situation. Where, 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 were you t- where were you two on this five years ago? Nowhere. Un- <laughs> right. And so <laughs> some, somehow, it, somehow it didn't take 30 years from five years ago. It only took five years. Yeah. yeah. I think the How big long- difference is Karen and I aren't sitting on a huge amount of wealth from bonds. And that's where you know. <laughs> so, yeah, but you, you, we would be doing that if we if we were. And you know, I, yeah, I think that's but, you know, I think that's my point, really. It's right. But it's my point is, you weren't, you weren't you were sitting on that not saying you weren't sitting on a pile five years ago either. But you just didn't have the opportunity to get introduced and to mm-hmm. recognize this is something worth spending your time on. But you have, and and the rate that people are getting introduced to it is accelerating because we had COVID scare and a week later global emissions drop 50 percent right well documented all of a sudden you can see china from space you could never see that before right and we did it by giving up non-essentials there was no starvation people weren't out in the cold people had clothing yeah some production of some of the stuff stopped but nothing you know nothing life-threatening right or, you know maybe a little bit around the edges but basically it was non-essentials and then we decided it's more important to bring back these non-essentials, bring emissions back up to where they were before and even higher, than to bring back the economy in some different method. There wasn't even a discussion. Okay, if there had been a discussion and that's the, the side that wanted to bring it back without emissions lost, okay, but there wasn't even a discussion. It was So that has to be near universal agreement to not even have a discussion that we're just going to bring this back. And now maybe over the next 30 years, we can drop things 10 or 15% and prevent. It's not going to, there isn't the political will. There isn't the will at the individual level to do any of this. Otherwise that wouldn't have happened. To me, that was a real, uh, you know, wake up call as to this, where are human beings right now on this whole issue? When you see somebody saying, well, you know, I I did a tweet showing that India was building uh, coal fired power plants. And responses are, well, why shouldn't they? You know, they burn a lot less per capita than everybody else. And shouldn't they have electricity like the rest of us? And, okay. You know, <laughs> what, you know, that's an interesting response, right? But that tells me a lot more than somebody who says, yeah, they shouldn't do it. And, for, and at the same time, we should have to dismantle ours. Okay. At least that person's thinking in the right direction. But the other one who thinks all these emerging markets should be allowed to blow out more CO2 so they can catch up to us. It's like, where's this coming from? You know, it's not, this is not that kind of, that is not this kind of like imperative. You know, it's it's a, uh, in people's, you know, it's it's not important to them enough to do anything. It's just not, it's not important enough to turn the lights off when you leave the room. It's it's not important to ban advertising on the internet, which would save huge amounts of CO2 emissions. They just won't do it. Okay. And so I think at this point, the individual, it's prudent to prepare for something, you know, for the worst, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, whatever that means. And, you know, I'm doing my best by explaining this to try and shock somebody into action, but I'm not all that hopeful that it's going to work. Well, so monetary sovereignty in Scotland, um, you know, what do you think? Should we have yeah. it? Scotland should have its own taxing authority and its own tax credit, its own currency, which I've labeled the kilt, right? You're familiar yeah. with that? Okay. Yeah. So um, we won't go into that. So uh, without it, you don't have the ability to sustain full employment. Okay. And the, your real wealth of any province is your real output real domestic output plus imports minus exports it's the starting point and from there you can modify it for national interests and strategic interests but your real wealth as point of fact is you know like the way i say it is economics is the opposite of religion it's better to receive than to give right so um it's your pile of stuff and your pile of stuff is everything you can produce domestically 
plus your imports minus your exports. And so most of it is going to come from your domestic production, goods and services. So by keeping everybody fully employed, you optimize that and you're optimizing your real wealth. And you can't do that if you're on a fixed exchange rate or if you've got a uh, using a foreign currency like the British pound, uh, you know, unless you have some arrangement for unlimited deficit spending from the UK, which is not even worth discussing. So for all practical purposes, you've got to have your own currency to do that. There's, there's no way around that. And, and so you have to decide if that's an important uh, goal, important to, to your life, you know, what, if, you, if that's the way you want to live your life, or do you want to live your life where you're going to have periodic, you know, um, thoughts of high unemployment and all the issues that come with it and, uh, you know, elements of austerity. So you can't avoid those without having your own currency because yeah. you're, you're going to be subject to those as long as you're using an external currency. And so then the question is, okay, how do you operate policy? And, and that's fine, but you've got to get to that point. And the way you get to that point is by pointing out, and I've got a paper on that. It's called exchange rate policy and full employment. But anyway, that paper explains clearly why you need floating exchange rate policy, your own currency to be able to support full employment. And to me, that should be your number one uh, objective when you have um, the decision, when you're making the currency decision for Scotland, do you want to support full employment, which is the essence of optimizing your real wealth, your true wealth? And, and that's pretty simple. So if you can get, if you can use that to say, okay, this is what we need. Now, what's our policy going to be? It's much easier. Right now, the debate kind of floats back and forth between using pounds and fixed exchange rates and this and that without ever without the primary focus being on, look, can we support unemployment or not? It's what is the trade balance going to do and how are we going to be able to import and all that? Don't start with that. Start with, look, we want to have full employment all, at all times because mm. that optimizes our real wealth. Not, don't use a bleeding heart argument because people have a right to full employment, which they do. I'm not arguing that. But the reason you want to do it collectively as a government is also and to some people, more important <laughs> to to forty percent of your population, more important. It's more important that you have um, optimal output. So, if you can win that argument, this is how we optimize real economic performance: is with floating exchange rate. Then you're also going to win the bleeding heart. And by the way, we're just going to have to accept full employment. Now, all the you've just you've, yeah. you've got everybody. Okay, but so you don't want to exclude people. You don't have to. You want to get mm -hmm. this done. That, that optimum output is so important for a small country, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's more, more, more important for a small country because if you're larger, you can you can operate you can operate at a lower than than maximum because you're still creating so much. But for a country like yeah. Scotland, being yeah. size five and a half million people, it is so crucial that every resource is yeah. pulled in to the economy for it to work. Yeah. If so, you were in the position where um, the the Scottish government have just set up something called yeah. the economic, so um, Scotland as part of the United Kingdom has yeah. a very different outlook than it would have as an independent country. Right, right, right. Could you, yeah, could, could you paint that picture yeah. of how different an economy like Scotland would be as part and of the United Kingdom not being able to issue its own currency and a yeah. country that is able to issue its own yeah. currency? So by having your own currency, you have the ability to educate your children such that they can be successful wherever they may want to go. And at the same time, have an economy that's vibrant enough, attractive enough, full employment economy where they, if they want to stay home, they can stay home and that you would be attractive to, you know, people, you know, globally, people would want to move to Scotland because of your economy. So you can only do that with, you know, independent Scotland with your own currency. You cannot do that as a province of the UK. It's wonderful that you said that because on top of the conversation we had with David McWilliams yesterday, he was talking much more about what independence allows a country to do in terms of discovering its creativity. And 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 what you've spoken about there is those kind of policy, those two policy approaches yeah. underpinned by currency. But it allows you to become the country that you really want to be in. And would you agree right, that it kind right. of unleashes that creativity and, and allows you to stand up in yeah, the world? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's what I mean by a vibrant economy. Mm. Yeah, and maybe vibrant isn't. Maybe there's a better word, but 
you, you want to have an economy that's vibrant. That doesn't mean it's the fastest growing necessarily, but it's the most attractive to people. It's a place where people want to live. Yeah. yeah. That's the important thing. That's the judge. Who judges it? Yeah. You know, is there a waiting list to get in? Do you see any Syrian refugees trying to get into China? <laughs> Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. not, maybe it's not so good. <laughs> yeah. That is a really important that is a really interesting point you've said about it not being the fastest growing economy because we still think that's the way to attract people is that you've yeah. got the fastest growing economy and not that there's full employment. Uh, it's a green economy, it's a circular economy, it's a healthy place to live. There's no pollution. There's yeah, there's these are all the things that, sure. that do attract people, not not the well come here well, and you can you can oh, look, we have people here in St. Croix from Denmark. They were born in Denmark. And Denmark has everything that they don't have here. It's got you know the free medical and high quality education and nothing. They don't want to live there. Well, why not? It's boring. <laughs> you know, it's it's sterile. That's what they say. I don't know if it is or not. Okay. It, does, it doesn't have to be that way. That's what I mean by you want a, an economy where, you know, a country where people like yourselves want to move there, mm. you know. And so uh, that's not necessarily just a place where everything's in order and organized and, you know, every all the lawns are cut properly and there's strict <laughs> strict laws and everything. You know, These are, you're talking about human beings who want to be able to display a level of creativity and see others' mm. creativity and have, you know, a vibrant economy, a dynamic. Maybe it should be a dynamic is the right mm. word, dynamic enough. Yeah, I think, you know, look, if you start at unemployment and real wages and measure success of the economy that way, I, th I think that's a good start. If unemployment's low and real wages are high and growing nicely and you're satisfied that they're getting a fair share of the output, then you've got a successful economy. You know, set your own goals based on that. You don't need any... Uh, any fancy econometric measurement techniques. Lots Thank you questions. very much for the opportunity. Okay. Thanks, Warren. Bye now. Yeah. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.